Security constantly evolves. We defend, and the attackers change tactics. We figure out the new attacks, and the rules change yet again. And so it is that the security architectures of old are not the security architectures of today, and the security architectures of today are not likely to be the security architectures of tomorrow. The future of infrastructure security today on the Data Knots podcast. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this and all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I'm Ethan Banks at EC Banks, and with me is the extraordinary Chris Wall at Chris Wall, who uses two-factor authentication to access his music library. All right, everyone, welcome to the show. We have two guests today to talk about security. We have James Holland and Aaron Miller. Both guys working for a security vendor in the Valley. James, uh, would you just briefly, a sentence or two, kind of introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, thanks for having us, guys. My name is James Holland. I am currently an SE with a security vendor. I've done about 14 years in the security industry. I've worked at vendor, integrator, reseller. I've done first, second, third line support, implementation, design, pretty much the whole lot, really. I also happen to to run a lot. I climb mountains and snowboard and stuff. I own way too many T-shirts. <laughs> and once upon a time, I was the lead singer of a really, really dreadful covers band. But uh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> Very nice. And we also have Aaron Miller with us. Again, sentence or two, would you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Aaron Miller, I'm a systems engineering manager for a cybersecurity vendor as well. I've been in security now for a little over a year. Prior to that, I worked in IT for 15 years in a variety of roles. I'm an American living in London, married to a Brazilian. I've got British kids that like their fish and chips. I used to run, I used to hike, and I used to climb mountains. But uh, now I change diapers, uh, and I'm a pretty avid traveler, having been to over 90 countries. Over 90? Man, you're running out of countries to actually go to. Wow. I, I definitely impressive. am, yeah. i got to tell my wife that, yeah. Huh, wow. Well, all right, guys, let's jump right into this. We wanted to start with a review of security's past. And as I was going through the notes, most of which James wrote for this show, uh, I was really reminded of my very earliest days where in the beginning we had stateful firewalls and that was you know, very exciting stuff. And, uh, you know, James, you've been in this for, for 14 years. So do you remember some of the first firewalls you worked on or kind of the, you know, the mode of operations when, uh, you know, when you, you put that firewall in place? Absolutely, yeah. It was very much the old traditional kind of gatekeeper style approach. Those five tuple firewalls came in, stateful firewalling had just come around, everyone was a little bit excited, but it kind of did bring along some interesting heel dragging inside most organizations. Things like the firewall change request form obviously were, were born about the same time out of necessity. The kind of things that would get rejected multiple times and thrown backwards and forwards for hours, if not days. The changes themselves probably took days to implement. Everyone was a little bit scared in the first kind of couple of years or so to really touch them outside of business hours. One of the things that happened at that same time, I think, is we ended up starting getting long rule bases that were kind of hard to decipher and a bit tricky to work with. I was reflecting on the firewall change form because the, the joke with that was someone would say, okay, I need these holes punched to the firewall because we're exposing it to the internet or whatever, you know, that gatekeeper firewall role there. Okay, great. What ports do you need open? What's a port? <laughs> I don't know. Just make it work. Oh, this is that brutal, joyful time. The vast majority of the submitters of the change request forms, uh, certainly in the first couple of roles I had, were service delivery managers, project managers, and yeah, UDP and TCP really didn't mean anything to those guys. Oh, can't you just open the whole range? <laughs> Wait, guys, you're missing the point here. Yeah. <laughs> 
that, I mean, that was life for a long time, though. I mean, really, you know, quite a long time. Wait, isn't it still life? I thought. Well, that's the I joke, that's isn't it? You, you never remove a rule because you don't know when it's going to break. Well, that that is that's why that's we ended real, up with right? rule bases. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's why we can end up with rule bases that are. Yeah, we've. I'm sure most people in security have been a long time us thousands of rules thousands of lines and you you can't hope for that to be secure you can't hope to understand what's happening in that rule base and not make a change that inadvertently does something that you didn't mean to so yeah it's it's tricky but you know i guess that that went along for quite a long time i reckon end of 2000s that kind of was the mode of operation it was only towards the end of the 2000s that i think there was much of a change i think we first started to see true application awareness around then and that changed a few things you know it was interesting that we could start to talk about applications in a firewall as opposed to just port numbers. But in, in true sort of silo-busting style for data nodes, like, what you found then was you had to go and talk to application owners as opposed to just service delivery managers. You know, you've got to actually understand what this application is, what it rides off the back of, what is it under the hood, because that's what the firewall might detect it as in those early days. No one knows that, right? That's like going into the dark cave. Even the application owner, a lot of camp, they don't know the ports and stuff that it's talking on. In my experience, they would say they knew, and they're like, yeah, it needs these three things. And then you sniff it out and like, oh, no, it needs these 17 other things that we didn't know about. Yeah. Google is your friend at that point, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and at the same similar time, you know, we started doing user-aware type stuff towards the late 2000s within a lot of the firewall products. And that was then another silo that you had to go and talk to. Suddenly, you have to go from the five-tuple monkey to being the guy who has to go and talk to whoever manages the Active Directory. And looks after the domain controllers. You might need a service account and, and understand how LDAP is formed and, and the nuances of global catalog and uh, a whole bunch of new stuff that was, yeah, it was, was quite a learning curve at the time. Really, those changes are indicative of a different way of thinking about security in that at one point in time, as you put it, the gatekeeper approach, that perimeter firewall where you were just punching port-based holes in this thing, you know, five-tuple. But then it's like, well, that's not really good enough because we're not really thinking about securing the application exactly. We also want to secure you know, more deeply what an application is, not just whether or not it can speak on its allowed ports, but what it's actually doing in those ports, the DPI. And then we began worrying about what users were doing since users and their identities began spreading across not just their laptop or their workstation – but now all these other devices, they might be logged into at any given time. And so the you know, being able to properly profile and secure what was going on got a heck of a lot more complicated. I mean, back in the old days, again, that gatekeeper role, it was just a glorified access list that had some smarts about it watching TCP and UDP flows so it could ward off certain other attacks and, and if we were lucky, do it at scale. Other than that, it was just a fancy access list is all it really was. And it's just gotten so much more complex. Wait, can you clarify what time frame are we talking about? Because back in the old days, NIT means like a year ago. It sounds like you're talking more like 2000s. <laughs> I just, I just want to be on the same page. We're talking more like 2000s, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. That was, I only lasted about four or five months in pure networking, which is when I actually started in. And it was cool enough, like you're talking about, you know, glorified access lists and stuff like that yeah it was cool enough for me to swap over to network security pretty quickly and, and i've stuck in security ever since but um one of the anecdotes I, I kind of talk about and it seems to resonate with a lot of people is that firewall is the one that started in a, in a lot of ways us doing things like dhcp reservations static ips in general even oh, yeah. the whole network design you know whole vlans and subnets being created and kind of inserted into the design process just so they could be referred to in a firewall rule base, which is, if you think about it, completely back to front, right? 
Uh, <laughs> you're saying that, and I'm like, I think I just did that at home in my PF Sense firewall. Then I'm starting to feel shame. It's like, I shouldn't be doing that. It's terrible. <laughs> you should feel shame. Aaron, I was looking in your notes. You said something here that I really remembered strongly, that information technology back in the day, particularly when it came to security, was the organization of slow and no. You know, we can do it, but it's going to take a while. Or just, yeah, no, we can't do that for you. And no seemed to come up a lot when the security people were in the room. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that seemed to be the day. And that was a pretty big shift. I mean, if you go, you know, just to nail the time frame down in the 90s, in the, in the late 90s, IT was actually the enabler. Can we all remember back to the days when people liked IT and they were the ones that gave you a new laptop or your desktop, they gave you your email address. It was fantastic. That slowly began to shift, Ethan, you know, into this org of slow and no. The requests started to come in from a security perspective. Can I start using this application we want only this group of individuals to use this application. And by default, the answer was always no, because it was such a pain in the rear, you know, to make those change requests to get that kind of shift to happen. I do think the world of IT in those days, tech really wasn't quite viewed as a differentiator yet. It was a cost center. It was hard. You know, change control, again, was a pain in the rear. You know, you sort of had email, you had a, a PBX and phone systems, maybe some kind of a big ERP system. CRM, et cetera, it was heavy, it was ugly, it was kind of proprietary, pretty challenging, you know, in those early days. I think as things evolved and, and getting into the kind of time frame that we're a little bit more comfortable speaking about, in the late 2000s, there was that shift to, I'll use the word consumerization. There's a lot of different yeah. you know, ways of speaking about it. And really, I mean, this is all Steve Jobs' fault, right? So these shiny new objects started coming out that you just couldn't do in the enterprise. You know, when the iPhone came out and especially the iPad, you had people just bringing them into the office. And I mean, you want to talk about a headache and a nightmare. And this is really a massive shift, I think, in IT for certain, but arguably at the risk of making this sound bigger than it is, maybe even in society where technology began to be meaningful to your average Joe Schmo. You didn't have to be a mega geek anymore to understand, you know, how to use an iPhone. The user interface was easy to, to use. It was understandable for even guys like my dad. To when grandma it. can jump on a computer and, and do whatever she wants ad hoc. And you're like, no, I can't do something really simple. The enterprise is like, really? It, makes, it was embarrassing. It was an embarrassing period of tech where like consumer stuff was just embarrassing enterprise stuff. I mean, we had robust and bandwidth and whatnot, but I do remember like my grandma getting on and emailing me and she's like, I figured it out by myself. I'm like, oh man, I need to pivot. I can't be a lever puller anymore because this stuff is getting way too easy. Exactly. And that really, when you stop and think about it for a moment, and again, tech moves so fast, we almost forget what it was like 10 years ago, but enterprise tech was pretty cool, right? I mean, you could definitely do stuff in your office that you could not do at home, right? We remember video calling and stuff like that. All of a sudden, FaceTime comes, Google Hangouts. This stuff is quote unquote free. You get social media platforms that instant sharing, the publish subscribe model. It really was a huge change that it was absolutely the worst nightmare. I could not fathom having been a CISO in those days, right? And just constantly trying to give people the Heisman, you know, on no, you can't bring that in here. No, that's not allowed. But the devices were so clever that, you know, they connect to any Wi-Fi, they'd figure out a way to download email. And, and before you know it, people have like their own email clients. This was not an easy time. I was guilty of that. I remember plugging in a wireless access point into a phone port because it was Ethernet and just connecting all my stuff to that. 
So I'm guilty. Yeah, I mean, I did it. Whatever. See, Chris, because I'm lazy. That's why I was this admin. Part of the problem. Wow. So my actual takeaway here is I'm having flashbacks to episode 80. I don't know if you remember that one, Ethan. It was the, the current state of network automation and telemetry with Ryan Booth. How could I forget? Yeah, I just spent the whole time being sad panda. So fortunately, this is the past. I mean, what's your takeaway on the past? Well, it's funny that it's the past because I think some people are stuck in the past, which is one of my takeaways here. I mean, we end up with technical debt. We end up with a lot of croft, you know, like you were mentioning, oh, no one dares to delete that rule because, oh, no, something might break. We're scared to clean up for fear we we might need the thing that we're going to clean up. You know, we're scared to change away from our old style firewall because it's what we've had forever and it's what we think we know works. And IT is not going to wait for that. Being stuck in the past isn't cool at all. Okay, that all sounds hairy, and it's kind of nice to walk through memory lane. I think we highlighted a lot of the good things, but we didn't bring up like change approval boards and ticketing systems and the pain that was those old days. Let's move ahead to the ghost of Christmas present and talk about where we at today. What's going on from a security perspective today? Yeah, well, I think, Chris, from the time frame we were talking about, the firewalls, quote unquote, of, of 10 years ago have, have become much more than firewalls. I think that's, that's a fairly obvious statement to make for anyone who's, who's looked at the security industry uh, at the moment. You know, they now tend to do a lot of other things. You're talking IPS, antivirus, web filtering, a whole bunch of other stuff like that. The kind of ideas of best of breed boxes everywhere, that's kind of starting to go away and we're starting to consolidate. Um, it it t- tends to make much more sense. But what, what I thought was interesting and what I've seen is a lot of, maybe like myself, um, folks that were trained initially in networks then kind of made that sidestep into network security. They've now got a whole bunch of other things that they're trying to cope with and add to their their arsenal of skills, basically, and, and keep up, right? And some of those, again, introduce you to other silos within the organization. I mean, the point at which you're dealing with which websites people can and can't go to and and some of the dodgier parts of the Internet, suddenly you're talking to HR. Suddenly you have to care about acceptable use policies and, and weird stuff like that, which is definitely not technical and what I thought I was going to get into when when I was a teenager. Yeah, it's funny. So much of that kind of stuff really depends on the organization, too, because some organizations may have an acceptable use policy, but do not expect IT to enforce it. They may say, yeah, just let it go through. And it's a manager responsibility to make sure the people under them are not wasting their time online, you know, that kind of thing. But come on, how many of those have you read? Like, who actually reads those? It's like the South Park Apple joke where he's like, read the terms of service, you know, and he just never does, even though he's on the hospital bed. But nobody reads that stuff. <laughs> no, I think in a lot of times it is a paper policy only, but I've, I've certainly worked with organizations where it, it really is taken quite seriously. And they probably are the, the fewer, to be honest. Let, That's let's, fair. let's be honest about it. Yeah. But there are circumstances. And we're, we're in a place now as well where I think there's been a separation between what I've kind of built up there, I guess, for, from the history as, as the, the network security team or maybe just the IT security team versus an infosec team or maybe even a cyber security team where you've kind of got those are the guys where you know maybe you're starting to build a sock now these days a lot of people will have a sock and and five years ago you couldn't have said that there's a lot more in terms of incident response incident management particularly because you know any kind of security breach or security incident could you know involve that particular organization in question having to talk to the press about why they've lost a bunch of data and things like that so those infosec teams have, have kind of sprouted up as well, which which is another interesting angle that I've certainly seen in, in the last couple of years and, and around the present time now. Can I ask just for the non-security folks, like kind of myself, SOC, is that like a knock, like 
Network Operations Center? What's what's SOC? <laughs> yeah, pretty much Security Operations Center, right? Yeah. It's like a dark room with everyone looking at monitors with headsets on trying to find the hacker. What is that thing? Well, that's it. If the stereotypical picture that you always see on the news article of a hacker is with a hoodie, right? And, and with lots of <laughs> Matrix style letters going through the screen and it's always green print on black background and all that kind of <laughs> cliched stuff, then the sock, I guess that's your cliched. Uh, you've painted the picture right there. Uh, you know, with, with all Got these it. security devices in the infrastructure, they're probably all sending logs and alerts to somewhere, some kind of seam or some kind of other monitoring system. So, yeah, it, initially, Knox were doing that job, right? All the SNMP traps and things like that coming back off the firewalls would come into the knock the same way as they would come from the, the routers and the switches and other bits and bobs. So that's kind of, I guess, now been seen as important enough that it's been sectioned off into its own somewhat important operation. <laughs> now, you mentioned SOC. You also mentioned Incident Command. You really feel that that's becoming prevalent or fairly normal for a lot of enterprises? Instant response, yeah, definitely. I think... I guess everyone kind of shoots or, or, or in their own mind thinks that they're shooting to stop things. But there's kind of an acceptance that things will get through at some point. I don't think anyone in the entire industry would be able to stand up and say, we're going to be able to stop 100% of everything. You certainly should aim as high as possible. You know, you shoot for the stars and, and you hopefully land on the moon. Accepting things are going to come through the net every once in a while and being ready to deal with that. Having procedures in place, be those, like I say, technical procedures in terms of remediation or or taking things into quarantine state, but also the, the non-technical aspects such as dealing with press and such as dealing with, you know, movement of people in, in, a, in a disaster recovery sort of situation. So, yeah, absolutely. And what about the 800-pound gorilla that started rearing its, I guess, its head and pounding its chest, <laughs> like 2008 or so VMware? I'm just thinking... Old school data center when I would hook up a couple hundred servers physically and that was the domain, like it plugged in and that was all that it was. And now you've got 30, 40, 50 sometimes servers, you know, virtual servers on a box that is a switch that you can't touch that's sort of layer two only. And and that sounds like it just really screwed everything up. Yeah, it did really. In the days of the 200 physical servers, we were used to being able to drop a physical box somewhere in between with the aid of our, our network chums doing some VLANs and cabling. And we'd be able to splice ourselves in somewhere. But I remember kind of certainly in the more security serious organizations at the time when this was all coming in, that the initial kind of play was, well, we're not too sure about how that's going to work. And we're not really keen on that kind of mixing everything together on one host as virtual machines things. So we'll have lots of different hosts and everything that's in a different security level or, or you know, maybe in a traditional 3 tier architecture, you know, web, middleware, database we'll keep those on separate hosts. So you won't have a web server and an app server on the same VMware host. And that keeps us with some separation. Whoa. Yeah, well, that, those, that, I saw that. that was horrible. Times. <laughs> yeah. I dealt with that too. People who would build out different stacks of hosts because, well, these are the ones that are going to be in the DMZ and these ones are going to be inside. And so we're going to separate all those out that way because that's really security we can trust. I mean, that sounds logical putting myself in your shoes because – I can see a request coming in and say, hey, can you trunk all this crap to a, a server? And you're like, that's stupid. Of course, I'm not going to do that. And then without, I guess, A, trusting the virtual switch and B, having knowledge around how it works. But man, I didn't see a lot of that. Maybe I'm just a uh, new school, old school. I don't know what school I am, but <laughs> that's, that's I mean, that mean, that tells me you have a lot of money if you can divide things up at the host layer because that's not cheap. Well, it wasn't at the time and it didn't last is, is the answer really to what you're saying is that uh, eventually people realize that that the 
one of the one of the whole premises of, of the virtualization was obviously to make more of the resources right instead of having all the servers ticking over at five percent let's chuck them all onto one big server and get more utilization out of it more bang for the buck so to speak so it, it didn't last but what it did mean for the security guys is we did have to go exactly as you mentioned chris to go and learn about port groups and v switches and and all those other bits and bobs not massively dissimilar in theory to the networking that we already knew but then we had our first kind of stab at, at trying to secure virtual machines within a host, which was kind of, we take the physical firewall that we knew and loved and, and did what kind of, you know, the infrastructure guys had done with the Windows servers and just convert it into a virtual machine, drop it onto a host, uh, onto, a, you know, uh, an ESXi host and, uh, you know, use the network constructs to put that firewall in between hosts. The same way as we spliced the firewall physically with physical cables and VLANs, we tried to use, you know, port groups and, and v-switches to shoehorn a firewall in there but um yeah. and I, I was see that... how they'd be a challenge too because you're just seeing all these mac addresses coming in from a port unless the vmware administrator added you as a administrator or something like that you never even saw the v-switch configuration so never no that, that no. was definitely the old school silo everyone's kind of punching at each other this is mine this is yours stay out of it <laughs> and I, I do remember i remember being the junior admin and being really angry at the network engineer because just give me a trunk port, man. Get off my case. Just get out of my way. And they were so interested. Like, what are you doing? Why this? And what's this? And what's this ice cuzzy thing? I'm like, go away, man. This is my piece. Just trunk my stuff. Honestly, that was not the right approach. And I was ignorant to their world. That was my problem. Yeah, in our world, you just asked to bridge every network going. And we were like, what, what do you think we've been segmenting with VLANs for the last 10 years for? It's a VLAN. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, you know, we, we both saw the errors of our ways, right? True, true. Although Ethan is still not course corrected, he's still in networking. So, but don't. <laughs> oh, I'd I'd, st- I'd still do five tuple firewalls if I could. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Aaron, you've mentioned a, a thought that I think is interesting. That in the present, any company these days is a technology company. Do you, th- do you think most companies think of themselves that way? Because I've heard that said, and I don't know that most companies feel that way necessarily. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, like anything, it could be argued. What I mean by that, I think, is in today's day and age, it's very difficult for an organization to, you know, make, deliver, market, or sell a product, you know, without the extensive use of, of technology. So even organizations that have been around for 50, 70, 100 plus years have had to certainly transform themselves and start to leverage technology in new ways. Now, in addition to that, you know, today we have all of the big heavy hitters that are what I would call digitally born, right? You look at companies like Airbnb, companies like Uber, of course, Google, Facebook, to quote Chris, these are truly the 800 pound gorillas now that are transforming society and really making technology such a significant driving force in not just the market, not just in business, but again, globally that it's completely changing the game from a perspective of how we handle security and how we think about security, not just as it relates to business or as it relates to IT, but you know, in our day-to-day lives. Well, certainly IT is spending a lot and businesses are spending a lot on security. It's funny as uh, being part of a company that one of the things we do is follow startups. The security startup space is <laughs> comical. There's just so many of them out there trying to do this or do that or try something new. But people are spending it. I mean, the market opportunity is huge for about any company that wants to get into security these days. And so it makes sense if you can find something clever to do with security and uh, and sell that to an enterprise. There's people that are going to want to hear your pitch and maybe buy your product. These, that's my take. Would you agree with that? 
Oh, oh, absolutely, Ethan. Yeah. So, so earlier this year, there's an event that takes place every year. I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with the RSA conference. Now, disclaimer, I've never been there, so I, I can't you know, speak from personal experience. But I do know this year there were 44,000 people at this conference. So, so take a moment and think about 44,000 human beings, you know, stuck in a room walking around, you know, talking about cybersecurity. And I think, again, in my reading, there were over 2,000 different vendors. So this plays precisely into, you know, what you're talking about. The market is beyond saturated. I don't even know what the right word would be for, you know, to kind of describe what that scene looks like. I use Wizzy um, Wham Wham Wazzle. Yes. That's my you know, Wizzy Waz Wham Wazzle, you know, actually, <laughs> that sounds right on par. <laughs> These guys are, some of it's snake oil, I would imagine. Some of it's very legit. But there's so many different approaches, different paradigms. And again, this is the kind of current dilemma that I think a lot of organizations have when it comes to security. What's real? Where should I focus my resources? Where do I want to focus my budget? And it's leading to this dilemma of so many vendors out there, so many products out there, and quite honestly, a very finite resource when it comes to the actual people that know how to install this stuff, the people that know how to deploy it, the people that know how to run it and water and nurture it and keep it working and everything else. I would argue it's probably unsustainable. So, so we need to think of something different for the future. How, how serious are enterprises really taking the security, though? The market is huge. There is interest. But the hacks are so many that they are barely newsworthy anymore. It's like, oh, so-and-so got compromised and their health information was scattered to the four corners of the globe now. And, uh, oh, this credit card database got hacked into and now all these numbers are gone and credit card companies just deal with the fraud, you know, not a thing. My parents mentioned that one of their cards got compromised again, you know, out of the blue. Don't know why, don't know how. It just happens so commonly now. There's almost the, the question that is begged is, is everyone taking security as seriously as they should be? Or are they just throwing money at the problem without the practice to really back up what they've been spending their money on? Yeah, great question. I don't know if I have all the answers to that. I think there's a lot of focus on this whole word compliance. And I can't help but feel, to be honest, in some conversations that I have you know, in the market, that there's a big checkbox approach in terms of they do a risk analysis, they kind of look at their environment, they kind of say, okay, you know what? These are the things that are important to us. This is where we, you know, we, we want to protect. But a tick box exercise, they're going to market looking at little kind of niche elements or you know, various aspects of you know, what's known as the attack life cycle. In the early phases, the, the bad guys are trying to do some recon. In the middle phases, they're doing lateral movement. And there's a variety of different niche vendors and niche products and applications that you can purchase that will defend against little aspects and components of this. The bottom line is you kind of get into this I use the term, you're missing the forest through the trees, right? You've got so many little products, so many little elements that aren't giving you a cohesive picture. There's very little context. And you're absolutely right, Ethan. It's very difficult for an organization to say with confidence, hey, you know, we're secure. We're, you know, we're, we're confident that we're doing everything we can to maintain a, a consistent security policy. And is security still operating as a silo, which I've always found comical because security touches everything. And yet you got the security dude over in the corner being miserable and you hate to see that person walk into meetings and stuff because they're that no person and so <laughs> on. But really security isn't that way. So in the present day, have we finally figured this out that security as a practice should pervade everything across all silos and operate in that sort of a sense? 
Without a doubt, I think we're getting there. And I've, I've been, you know, an, an avid listener of your show, and I would definitely agree with kind of an overall trend, at least that I've kind of taken out from listening to you. I think a lot of the silos in IT in general are genuinely breaking down, right? I think that's a manifestation of DevOps and some other changes that are occurring in the industry. At least for me, my, my personal experience is we still see some challenges sometimes within security with regards to, I'll use the term, the quote-unquote network guys. So the network security guys, they're responsible for the firewall. That's their baby. They're concerned about throughput. They're concerned about speed, concerned about making sure that the applications are, are, are getting what they need from that perspective. And they are very reluctant to have conversations with, for example, the guys running the desktop with the guys that are sitting in the security operations center. So I don't want to say there's finger pointing. I don't want to over-rotate on this point. But to me, in a lot of the conversations that, you know, I've been a part of, there's still a bit of kind of finger pointing and jostling and, dare I say, some of the political games that people play. As Data Nuts is a show about breaking down silos, it was nice to hear that silos are breaking down even amongst the security folks where they're, they're no longer in their ivory tower, you know, handing down policies, most of which say no, you know, that uh, silo breakage is even impacting the security folks. And that's good because in my mind, that's sort of the way it's always been where everybody's responsible for security and there's a security practice and policies that everyone is supposed to be working on together and being comfortable with and, and so on. So that makes sense to me that that is hopefully finally becoming more of a normal thing. What were your takeaways, Chris? It sounds a little tongue in cheek, but we talked about the seriousness of security, you know, like that we're getting the fatigue of seeing all these intrusions and credit card leaks and things like that. But honestly, I am getting really tired of being sent credit card because someone broke into something that I consumed from in the past. And it's really frustrating to me. I'm very fatigued from it and frustrated. So I don't think that's necessarily going to elicit change in the industry, but you know, if we ask the question, is this being taken seriously? Is this annoying and frustrating? Yes, 100%. And I, I look forward to it being reduced or eliminated in the future. Well, let's move the conversation ahead to security's future. We've set up the past and the present, where things are at. But as we look to the future, a lot of what we've covered on this show is how infrastructure is changing. So one of the themes has been ephemeral infrastructure, where if you've containerized and you're working with elastic loads or auto-scaling, you can have workloads instantiate and do their thing and then not be needed anymore. And so they get shut back down a very short life cycle. Securing those sorts of environments or an environment where, well, some of what we run, we run in our own data center. Some of what we run, we run up in the public cloud. And then having a consistent security profile across many different locations and those locations possibly changing over time is hard, James. I mean, so we are seeing some security products start to head off and deal with those kind of problems. Absolutely, yeah. And when talking about these kind of now and future problems, I put some of the things in here that might be controversial to, to some of the listeners to the podcast, but I put things like public and private cloud and SDN, things like that into future because the vast majority of organizations that I'm talking to and probably are in the same, they might be thinking about these things and talking about these things and there might be a little test lab in the corner or you know a little instance in, in one of the public clouds off a credit card, but it's not really anywhere near production yet. So they're starting to walk into some of the headaches and some of the interesting uh, challenges they'll find when they start to move into some of those new operational models. So yeah, absolutely agree. 
for the longest time, I guess, we've operated our own security devices within our own bubble. Maybe, you know, the last few years we've started talking to other silos and we've had to talk to the virtualization guys to get the right compute for our, our virtual security appliance and things like that. But now we really have genuinely got to do some proper integration work. The concept really that is, is, is if everyone going forward is going to be automating and then orchestrating at a higher level their infrastructure and infrastructure as code, everything as code, we've got to do a hell of a lot of work to get into that. In terms of, I guess, software defined network itself, I guess, you know, most people hear that and think of the likes of OpenStack and NSX and, and maybe ACI. Now, that, that's a whole new new world of challenges for us. We talked about the progression of, well, I used to have VLANs and cables and I stuck a physical firewall in and then I had to deal with vSwitches and port groups. And, and now it's kind of like, oh, OK, how do I steer traffic into my firewall when you're running this overlay <laughs> network and I, I haven't got a clue where it's going. It's service chaining. It's service chaining, James. It's going to fix everything. We'll all be fine. Yeah, of course great. it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And with service chaining, you kind of get then go away from the concept of an individual firewall. You're thinking it's a service, right? It's just this kind of, again, this higher level kind of concept that you have to raise your brain up again, really, to kind of get into. And it has to do that, by the way, because all the other parts of the infrastructure are going this way. Everything else is, is auto-scaling, scale-in, scale-out, and, and things like that. It has to be done, but in the same way that, that maybe I, I from, from my point of view, would look forward to that, look to, you know, learning something new and finding out about some new technology, certainly. From the other side of the fence, you have these newly formed InfoSec teams and, and SOCs and, and things like that, and maybe security getting more of a presence on the board level at some places, and, and suddenly all of those people are looking at this going, well, hang on. So you're telling me you're going to steer traffic in and out of a firewall based on some automated rules, depending on what might have spun up at that time. And maybe we'll read some attributes from a server to determine whether we need to firewall it or not. And, and they look at all this stuff and go, ah, you know, I need controls. Where's, where's change control in this? How do I know that the attribute on the server won't be wrong and something won't be hideously exposed? And again, I, I probably haven't got exactly all the answers for those kind of things, but that's certainly a, a current to future challenge, I would say. It's the sort of thing that people are starting to think about. And when they start rolling this in production, these kind of considerations are going to have to be in there. There's a, there's a lot of things there that we can unpack. One of them, I'm going to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. You talked about integration, integration work. How do we integrate with whatever the product might be, you know, an orchestration platform like or OpenStack or, you know, some of these other SDN platforms you could put NSX or ACI in there as, um, you know, network platforms that are enabled by some sort of SDN. Where do you think the integration work needs to happen? So, you know, there's one school of thought where you would see a certain kind of enterprise or maybe a cloud provider, maybe a service provider that would do that integration work themselves, where they're taking pieces and parts from all over to roll together their custom clever IT solution that meets their business needs and they do the integration because they got developers on staff and so on. But I think for a lot of folks, and you tell me if you agree or not, the reality is that integration is going to need to be done by a vendor so that you're ending up with some kind of a turnkey solution. Absolutely. Yeah, it's boring to agree. I wish I could argue with you, but it's it's very true. Another kind of phrase I end up finding myself saying a lot is that an API is not a feature on its own. Right. An API is only a feature, one, if it's a good API, and that's you know a whole topic in itself. The thing has to be open, everyone can use it. There's no kind of special access to vendor only or support desk, things like you. You've got to be able to actually use it. It's got to give you all the functionality you need from a configuration and an operational standpoint, and it's got to be consistent and all those kind of things. But all of that only really matters if you've got people who can actually write to it and do that integration work. You know, And that's, a, again, a whole bigger topic to talk about. 
how that integration should happen. Um, but yeah, you're right. The, the likes of the the hyperscale companies, the service providers, they have that functionality now. They have people that have those skills and those skill sets and the experience to do that. But the average shop, no, I don't think they're going to do too much of that. <laughs> so that's a, good, that's a good point, though. It's it's generally titled like, oh, we have an API and you can integrate. Like, yeah, can. And certainly that skill set is being developed. But man, I, I remember a couple projects where it was just slapped out. Oh, yeah, this particular cloud management platform can integrate with this other service portal, whatever. Yeah, if you write 80 freaking integration points and talking to these endpoints and building workflows, it's like, holy cow, that's a lot of work. I mean, not everything's like that, but it's certainly a good tip to not just check the box and say we can integrate. Actually interrogate that. Like, what does that level of effort look like? Do I have to hire somebody to, like, write that integration or outsource it or whatnot? So, I don't know. You... you, you you put a little salt in a wound that I've experienced in the past. I just wanted to pipe <laughs> up on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly that coding side of things is, is something I find myself coding and scripting, whatever you want to call it, you know, writing automation, writing something that, that a human used to do that uh, I'm now going to get a computer to do automatically. is something I'm doing a lot more all the time. And I think a lot of people are, are seeing that. You guys have mentioned it a number of times on previous episodes. It's the way things are going. And and certainly I think it's it's not a bad thing to have a little bit of experience there. I count myself fortunate that my university education was primarily around um, was primarily around software engineering, and I actually I actually avoided the networking module because it looked too hard. Um, so I went for something easier instead to get the best marks I could, which is kind of ironic given that I then went straight into networking. But I've got that kind of background where I know uh, what an if you know an if then else uh, a while loop. I, I get switches, switch statements, and, and all arrays and things like that. And you can transpose those between a lot of languages fairly quickly. You just need a little bit of different syntax. And that's easy to say if you've got that experience, but certainly any way that you can gain a bit of that, it'd be quite useful, I think, as, as things go forward. So, James, another point I wanted to unpack. You mentioned the InfoSec guys starting to go a little bonkers because they're looking for tight control and change control system and you know a process whereby when things are changing in their world, they can review and think it through and kind of bless it. But infrastructure broadly isn't headed that direction. You know, and People want to be able to change quickly and stand up new apps and provision new infrastructure and be able to do those things on the fly, on demand. I hate to say shadow IT just because I hate hearing the word that shadow someone IT. coined. But yeah, but that whole thing is a result of things moving too slowly and being too carefully controlled. And I'm just trying to get my freaking app stood up. Stop getting in my way. And so they'll move elsewhere. Where's the middle ground? Where's the compromise that we need to end up with? I have a personal opinion on this, which is, it will change. It might take a while. <laughs> and and I guess, you know, when it changes is going to be different for each organization. But I think the way to think about it is that we had a manual change control process. And there was I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we if we said that every time an application owner, a service delivery manager, a project manager submitted a change request, we would go and interrogate it to the nth degree that we knew exactly the full entire impact of every single port and every single thing that we were doing. I think we gave it our best effort at the time, but you just, there's not enough hours in the day to go to the level to, to absolutely 100% assure anything. Now, you, you kind of skip forward and, and go, okay, well, what we want to do now really is put some kind of automation or some rules or some policy that defines the constructs by which we can apply security in certain circumstances with certain types of workloads in certain locations at certain times and, you know, all of that's going to gel together to give us this orchestrated system. And that's how we're going to deploy security, because quite frankly, it all needs to be agile and really quick moving. And that's the only way we can do it. So I think now, instead of signing off those individual change forms and things like that, 
security or infosec, whatever it's called in that organization, are going to be signing off those policies at that top high level. And in the same way that there was some trust in the engineers to interpret and accept the changes that were being submitted as valid and not stupid and not opening up big holes and all the other things, there's going to have to be some trust that those policies are implemented properly and that any information those policies rely on, like attributes of workloads, are going to be surfaced properly. Which makes sense. You have someone that reviews, understands, and enforces a policy, but then there is some trust that operations staff is going to follow a naming convention or a tagging scheme that populates metadata fields appropriately so that that policy is accurately enforced. But you know, you've, you've put the InfoSec people in a place where they still have control and still have a bearing on what's going on without having to review every minute detail because practically speaking, they can't. Absolutely. Totally agree. And, you know, we have a similar set of challenges, I guess. This has been primarily focused around private cloud, I think, so far. But a lot of this is actually true of public cloud as well. You know, in, in a similar way, we can we can do things like pull attributes and interesting information about the workloads that are in any given public cloud within a given subnet or whatever that public cloud vendor calls it. And, you know, relying on that information to build rule sets and to build policy between different areas of the public cloud and different zones of the cloud across the globe and, and how that is all formed together. So it's, there's actually a lot of similar challenges in both public and private cloud because they're both built on that nature and, and that idea of agility and, and dynamic networks and scaling in and scaling out and so on and so forth. Well, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, in the public cloud environment, like, I hear you saying there's a lot of similarities, but there's no VLANs and things like that. Isn't it kind of a different beast or, uh, I guess, compare and contrast? Because I I thought it was a whole different beast from a networking perspective uh, once you go public cloud. Yeah, you're right, Chris. I mean, the, the plumbing is totally different. You know, from a networking point of view, it's it's a it's a real <laughs> it's a real eye opener. In many ways, you can chuck away a lot of what you'd learned in the last twenty years of of, of traditional quote unquote networking. Consider um, it done. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> every last bit of it, Chris. Every last bit. Um, yeah, they do. You know, the the guys who stood up the public clouds have almost built their entire new set of networking paradigms. You know, the way that you steer traffic, the way that routing and switching works. Do we even have the concept of of a true layer two anymore? For example, it's a very interesting question. It's very interesting, but in particular for firewalls, um, the main reason being that we forever have been concerned with state, and we would always deploy firewalls whether when it was business critical in HA pairs, and they would be stateful HA pairs. You know, anything that was a TCP-based connection, a long-lived connection, whatever it might be, VPNs that are terminated, we would gracefully carry those over to the other partner, partner node, the other partner firewall in the event of a failure of the primary one. And a lot of that was based on things like VRRP and there was virtual Macs involved, virtual IP addresses, floating IP addresses, all those kind of constructs. And the networking paradigms that are present in public cloud don't really allow you to do that. <laughs> Having a virtual IP doesn't really work. Having a virtual Mac really, really doesn't work. So you can't just flip that thing over from one instance of a firewall to another instance of a firewall, just like that in a, in you know in under a second, which is what we've been used to. So we're now having to design things, I would say, quite differently. I guess that comes as no surprise to anyone who's doing cloud-native, quote-unquote, stuff with their applications. You know, There's another topic of conversation you guys have had before on the show is how lifting and shifting traditional stateful legacy applications and just dumping them in the public cloud and hoping they'll work or believing they're going to work in the same way is, is a bit of a fallacy. 
and the target model really is that you have some level of rewriting, if not complete, such that it, it works in the cloud and is hopefully stateless and, and is very fault tolerant and all these other kind of clever things that we can do these days. And that would help us a lot from the file point of view as well. Let's do some closing thoughts here. You know, Aaron, you have any parting thoughts on this lengthy discussion we've had about security? Yeah, I guess, you know, my key takeaway here, Ethan, and you mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, security is very much a horizontal technology, right? So wherever your focus is, if you look at the market and you think, you know, cloud's the next big thing, uh, big data analytics, 3D printing, whatever the heck is going through your mind, all of those things are going to require security going forward. It absolutely permeates everything. And I guess, you know, when we think about it sometimes, you know, is security an annoyance or are we, are we really giving it the attention it's due I often think about my kids, quite honestly. Um, I got two little kids. They'll probably never drive cars, right? If you look at how the you know, society is going, how technology is advancing. And in that world, cybersecurity in that environment, you know, will be of paramount importance, right? It becomes very real, becomes, you know, of critical importance. And I think that, you know, that, that's something that I would encourage your audience and all of us to think about as we go into the future and kind of deal with this uh, ongoing evolution. Well, Aaron, except for IoT, I mean, we don't need to secure IoT at all. We need to leave those things wide open and easy to use. <laughs> Absolutely. Because <laughs> what problems could that possibly cause? Right. It'll create a more interesting future for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> James, what about you? Parting thoughts? We've had a little kind of, you know, past, present, future chat about things. I, I just kind of think that the, the first kind of few few changes we spoke about in, in the past section were were kind of incremental um, even the even the recent stuff has been fairly incremental. I think this kind of new wave now, where where we are treating everything as code, and and people, folks are certainly me included, and and everyone else I'm I'm around me, I'm working with, even in different disciplines, are all whether they didn't before, they are now doing scripting, now doing coding, and they know what a RESTful API is and things like that, which I think even two years ago, even less maybe, certainly none of them would have even even dreamed of that. So. Um, I think the full stack engineer, as, as we like to call it, is, uh, is definitely alive and well in, uh, in security. Hmm. Aaron, how can uh, folks find you online? Do you blog or tweet, anything like that? Yeah, I have a Twitter handle, ARMiller007. And, and to be honest, guys, I'm in the process of writing a blog. It's not quite uh, live yet. So once I gain the courage to uh, pull the trigger on that, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> what about you, James? Yeah, too busy writing uh, Python scripts now to do a blog, I'm afraid. But if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at jamesholland underscore UK. Go ahead, follow me. Feel free to ask me any questions after the show. Great. Thank you very much to both of you for being on the Data Knots today. And that is it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. You can reach Ethan, that's me, at ECBanks on Twitter. And my blog is ethancbanks.com. You can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter, and his blog is wallnetwork.com. For more of our Data Nut shows on infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You will find the Data Nuts talking about containers and conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full-stack engineering, storage architecture, even security. So much more is there to be found. And until then, may your server lights blink, your security architects say yes, and your cables be cleanly managed. Oh, it is. My cat didn't interrupt us once. <laughs> I was afraid to go home for fear of my daughter coming in and having a BBC moment. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>